Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Era here. All right. Here's what we're doing today. It is going to be, I've been looking forward to this interview for four months. Um, Tony Tipton Martin is, I think she's written the cookbook of the year. She is an amazing uh, author. She's a food writer, a historian, a nutrition reporter. Grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I first became aware of her, I guess, at the L.A. Times. And then she worked for many years uh, editing the Cleveland Plain Dealer. In the last couple of years, she's put, maybe more than that, put her put her all into investigating African-American culinary history. Um, and the book that just got out this week, it's called Jubilee Recipes from Two Centuries of American Cooking. It is just going to be uh, a thing that remakes our understanding of American food. I am, I've rarely been so excited about a book. It's like Sean Sherman's uh, first book, The Sous Chef, the, the big one that kind of re may helped us re-understand Native American food traditions. Uh, that's the other book that kind of comes to mind as a, a critically important or, or just a broad book looking at a lot of history. And uh, Tony Tipton Martin uh, joins us from her book tour. Tony, welcome. Wow, what an incredible uh, introduction. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. All right, we're going to devote two segments to you because I just think you are the most important just the most important thing happening in food right now. Um, so let's let's actually just let people get to know you. You are you grew up in Southern California. You're a beach bunny. Something no. What I am, are- <laughs> hey, I, I'm a beach girl. Let me tell you, I I miss the ocean, and that's part of what has driven my move west or east. Sorry. All right. I'm, so I'm, so you grew up. I mean, tell tell people who you are. How you how you came into this uh, whole food writing game. Wow. You know, it's such a, um, I was trying to make a long story short. Don't. Um, I've had the same same experience over and over again throughout my food career. Um, And that is one of unexpectedness. The stories have, uh, and the experiences happened to me, uh, which is a blessing, really. Um, I was a college student. Um, kind of bold and I wanted to figure out how to get out in front of my students, my peers. And so I went to the local newspaper and asked for a job and they kind of giggled and said, oh, honey, that's not how that works. You know, you have to have an education and a career. And um, But because of your boldness, we're going to give you a tryout. And they did. They hired me and uh, needed somebody who would manage the recipe section. So they gave that to me. Uh, Fast forward, I did the same thing with the L.A. Times, went down, was kind of nerdy and said, I really want to work here. And they were just like, oh, honey, that's not how it works. (laughs) People work their whole lives to get here. But because of your boldness, uh, we might give you a tryout. And in six months, I was hired there. Um, And so, you know, that story just continued to happen for me. The, The more deeply I got involved in the industry, the more seriously I took the work um, then the opportunities kept coming to me. Next thing I knew, I was food editor at the Plain Dealer. Then John Edgerton called with that incredible opportunity to uh, lead the Southern Foodways Alliance. 
and and so it's just it's been a wild and crazy and amazing ride. And your your people, I mean, actually, we should just say boldness and fearlessness will get you pretty far in this world. Uh, that is probably if you have two qualities you want to give a kid. Uh, being bold would be one of them because uh, being afraid doesn't get you much. Um, Absolutely not. And even in the face of uh, intense um, disenfranchisement for people of color, the lack of uh, leadership in the upper echelons of the news media, um, I, you could call it naive or bold, but I just uh, had a passion for the work. And uh, come out of that old school mentality where you earn your way, and I was determined to prove my value. Um, and so I took classes at night um, to ensure that I understood nutrition, for example. I wanted to take that part of the job really seriously. Um, and that's sort of the backdrop of how I wound up taking Southern and African American food history seriously and became uh, self educated in that. Well. And speaking of, of African-American food history, your own people, they are they are an American story in and of themselves. Right. So they tell, tell the story of your people kind of migrating across the country heading west. Yeah. What's really interesting about um, our migration story is I find it to be um, a, a pretty common story. Um, we hear so much about. Uh, northern migration out of the South and, and folks who settled in Harlem and Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit. Um, and we just read and speak less and less about Western migration, at least, you know, my experience with it. We hear a lot about Latinos in the Southwest. We hear about Native Americans in the um, uh, mountain nets. And um, so there's a rich story to tell about African-American history. And it turned out my family had been pretty quiet about our migration story. And I think that that really reflects the pain associated with um, Southern living and um, their desire to put a lot of that um, hateful history behind them. So we didn't talk a lot about um, the South in my family. There were remnants of, of Southern living uh, present in our in our family tradition. But my parents really put down roots in, in the West, and um, and Southern California became our um, you know that that became our identity. But you, so in the details, though, so uh, ended up in kind of leaving Tennessee into Nebraska. Is that the route? Oh, no, no, no. So my um, my um, maternal side of the family is from uh, the Texas, um, Louisiana uh, region, mm-hmm. um, Shreveport. And my father's side of the family um, migrated through Nicodemus, Kansas. So my step-grandfather uh, was part of the, is one of the descendants of the original families that founded uh, Nicodemus, Kansas. That's what I wanted to talk about. That's, That's an amazing story. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so accustomed to trying to be brief for short interviews, and so I apologize for that. But yeah, my, um, my uncle is still living there uh, in Nicodemus. He's part of the Buffalo Soldiers. Um, I haven't seen it, but I'm told that my uh, grandfather, great-grandfather's home um, is sitting kind of in the middle of the town where they built the road around it. 
Um, so I'm eager to get up there and take a peek, but I haven't seen it yet. So that was part of the, you know, uh, right around the t- kind of Civil War when there was so much going on where people wanted to get new territories and, you know, either have them be slave states or free states. Uh, Minnesota's part of that. This was basically an abolitionist state. Uh, people were uh, came up here to, to that's who a lot of our founding fathers were. Um, and that was the story of Nicodemus, Kansas. A lot of people were like, we've got to get in there. We've got to make a free and better place. Such an American Well, and story. they were lured there, actually, um, out of Kentucky primarily. Um, so it was an upper south migration um, where folks were uh, lured for better lives and opportunity. They were told that there was great timber and great land for growing um, crops. And um, they were offered um they were offered opportunity, really, that they could not get in um, the Old South um, to move into Kansas. And so there was an entire westward ho type of movement of African-Americans um, into Kansas. It was a tough place, um, a dust bowl. They were deceived, um, of course, and uh, the, the land was not what they were promised. Um, they, the people lived in uh, dugouts for a while, um, it, you know, like holes in the ground, the way that, you know, animals, nocturnal animals live, um, which is tragic, but it also demonstrates the survival um, character of these people, my ancestors, who have been so poorly marginalized and given the worst of the worst to to survive um, and to achieve, and yet they have thrived and exceeded expectations in so many ways. Um, I couldn't be prouder of that history. And it and it's so it's a, such a perfect American story because just that you know overcoming so much, but then uh, overcoming the odds, overcoming uh, so much, and then turning very little into gold. And that's you know now let's talk about your book Jubilee, which obviously it has so much research into it. I mean, it's just. Feel like it's just going to change how we think about American food, but in Jubilee, you t- you kind of get into that topic that you know dealing with the second run, dealing with the less you know the the lesser portion, and just turning it into gold again and again. Um, we have about three four minutes before we uh, need to take a little break here, but let's just examine one of those uh, one of those topics that kind of runs through your book, uh, the story of, of fried chicken is very much a story of uh, working from the margins and turning it into gold. Well, it depends on, on the gold, right? Um, <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, on a small scale, African Americans have women in particular were able to um, uplift themselves um, to provide for their families. Some were able to um, provide education for their children by selling fried chicken. And I'm thinking specifically of the waiter carrier women who met trains in the Gordonsville, Virginia region. Um, but when we think about the broader story of success story of fried chicken, we it, it is hard to compare that t- small time period and the accomplishments of those women to what could have been attained if African-Americans had been able to mass produce the fried chicken that we're always pursued. Sure. (laughs) We're always pursued after our, for our recipes. And yet, you know, how many major fried chicken um, franchises are there other than, you know, the few that 
our local um, to communities like my favorite in my hometown, Goldenberg. Yeah, that's I think that's a perfect example because, uh, you you know, you talk about in the book a story which I didn't know, which is the, you know, people were women mainly were meeting the trains and, you know, kind of building their brand, just having having to make something spectacular to get the attention of, you know, uh, people who are just basically zipping through town. And so they created, you know, this this quintessentially American food that has spread around the world. And that's why Jubilee is so great, because you you find the seed, the root, the core of what's happening in American food. And then you tell that story. And I think most people don't know it. No. And, and a lot of what I have researched has been um, right there in plain sight in, in scholarship. Both stories about the, the waiter carriers dominate uh, Psyche Williams Forson's work. Um, and there are other scholars like her who have devoted their careers to, to uncovering these stories. What I did as a reporter was thread them all together. All right. That's a good place to pause. We're going to come back with part two of our interview with Tony Tipton Martin. Her book is Jubilee. And it is just it is I haven't talked enough about the recipes. There's some great recipes. I have one up at uh, WCCORadio.com right now. The okra pilau. We'll talk about that later. Um, but uh, it's just it, it just puts together so many threads of American culture. And it's one of those things that I just I love that chance to kind of you know, put on different glasses and see a thing that you thought you knew, see it differently. That's what this book is. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back with Tony Tipton Martin of Jubilee. Sarah here. This is what I do with my life. I like to find out about food, people, places, things. Y'all know me as a writer at Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. And I have read some cookbooks in my day And I'm just so crazy about this new one. It is Jubilee Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking by Tony Tipton Martin. Um, She joins us on the road, and I'm really grateful. The book comes out this week, and if you – you know, it's one of those rare books that if you cook, it's going to be greatly helpful. And if you don't cook, it's a great read in and of itself because it just brings to light certain parts of history that I just – I never see. All right, so Tony, how did you how did you create this book? What was the research process? It seems like it's the light. It's a you know must have taken you twenty years. Well, it's a pretty good observation. It did take me over twenty years. Um, it's a process, a project that I started when I was way back at the LA Times, although I wasn't uh, clear exactly what the project was at the time. And um, it, it is true that this is a largely historical cookbook. I wanted it to be a celebration, right, of African-American cooking and my family's food history um, that I did not see reflected on the pages of Southern food history. And it all started because I was in pursuit of my grandmother, really. I was looking for more women like her to be role models, not only for me, but for my children. I wanted to... Uh, learn more about African-American women um, that I could see in my community, but I didn't see reflected in pages on the pages of history. And so it started one little cookbook at a time. I was just collecting them, looking for first-person voices. You know, a reporter, we want to we talk to people. We, we thrive on that interview process. And I needed to talk to real women. And so it occurred to me that cookbooks might be one way for me to hear their voices. And I was completely 
blown away when I discovered that the oldest African-American cookbook was published in 1827, um, which was just a total surprise and mind blower for me. And that inspired me to begin this hunt for more who loved them. And before I knew it, I had over 400 cookbooks, and they started to form their own little story. Um, they, those authors began to reveal what their values were, their culinary style, their technique. They just um, reframed the story and the truth of the African-American hard-laboring woman um, in the kitchens of the South um, in a whole new and fresh and exciting way for them. And there's just so many stories I have never heard before. And a lot of them are, you know, you can kind of slightly get yourself back into the headspace of it's 1827, it's 1860. You know, the people that are are getting their their recipes published, there were successful entrepreneurs in little, you know, the in Dallas of 100 years ago, in New Orleans of 150 years ago. You know, so this is a, a kind of a surfacing of a, a bunch of very successful uh, people of their time. Absolutely. And from them, I hope, um, will spring um, more voices, right? I hope that more families will recognize their ancestors on these pages and then they'll tell us more stories that we don't know about. Um, a really cool example of that is Chris Williams. Um, he is the great-grandson of one of the authors in the book, um, Lucille Bishop-Smith, and she published her treasure of recipes in the 40s. And he named, uh, he's a CIA-trained chef, and he named his restaurant in Houston's museum district after her. And that's the kind of hope that I have for this content, is that the next generation sees themselves with pride, sees their history with pride, and and really just um, we all can be free from the boundaries of this tired, uh, ignorant, or magically trained, ma- magically um, talented African American cook, um, so that we can all just return to the kitchen and enjoy enjoy all of what it has to offer. Yeah, because a lot of the African American cooking experience was urban, and it was in resorts, and it was—I mean, I just—I I, I just can't say enough. Like how much of this uh, book you just turn pages, you're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Never seen that story told before. Right, right, and I think it's because you know we're having this conversation now a lot um, in terms of uh, equity in the food industry and labor issues. And so this isn't a new story, this idea that African-Americans have been there and were the invisible laborers. Um, what I wanted to do was spin that story on its head by looking at the, the more um, positive aspects of labor and, and the, the, um, what it means to participate in haute cuisine or to be a hotel owner or to own your own oyster restaurant or to be a mixologist in the 19th century. Um, those are all the types of careers that we attribute celebrity status today. Yes. Right? Uh, absolutely, we do not know what what our favorite Food Network stars prepare at home with their families. We appreciate and applaud them for the food that they prepare at work. And so my, my focus here was on what happens when we look at African-American cooking through the lens of work. In a positive way, you know, who would they be? And we discover, I discovered 
We had people that would have been on television that had TV shows before Julia. Um, I discovered people that had their own product lines and were manufacturers in the 40s. Um, the stories, as you say, they just um, they were just uh, laying in wait for somebody to to unearth them. I will say that it was there was a lot to unearth them. They are embedded in in the academy and in, in scholarship um, that is more and more turning its attention to food studies, and so a lot of these stories are starting to be extracted um, from other stories. Right, they're embedded in mention of a guy named Francois, who just happened to be a French trained chef in the low country and trained other African American um, chefs. Right, but his name for years haunted me as I was reading Southern history because scholars would just sort of drop his name and then it would go away. Um, and so it's becoming a lot easier and I hope more more people will um, use this book as a jumping off point really to tell more stories. I think that's exactly what will happen is people will go in and they'll start kind of, you know, looking at, you know, a a coffee shop or a, a, you know, a a particular hotel and and getting that out there. Well, I mean, you have just done a a world of service to American history and also uh, some delicious recipes. So (laughs) this is my favorite kind of history of all. Well, thanks so much. Um, You know, the recipes are a story in and of themselves. Um, the the recipe collection was intentionally chosen so that each recipe really is like the frosting on a cake, uh, in my view. Um, I chose stories and recipes that would make a particular point. For example, I wanted the jambalaya to show the continuation of the practice of African cracked rice tradition. Um, I wanted um, the celery victor which no one would associate with African-American food history to reflect the catering tradition for people to understand or question what happens when a caterer has leftover food, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's her food. It's, her, it's the food she made. It belongs to her and or him. And um, they were aware of the social trends and the hot foods at the time, and their recipes included a dish called braised celery, but when it's put, when that dish is put in social context, it turns out that that was one of the rages that was uh, happening on restaurant menus under the name of celery victor. Oh, I'm looking at the recipe right now, um, and so you've got you have a way of doing it. So you kind of saute the celery in drippings left over from a leg roast. Um, I think that a lot of people would like to give this a try because celery is. On fire again in the culture. People are liking their celery. They're juicing it. They're munching it. And so it could That's be right. a good. And back then, there was, a, there was actually a special um, dish, a gorgeous crystal bowl that was on the centerpiece on the table that was just for celery. Um, it was a prized vegetable. So it may seem strange to us today, but if we're able, I would hope that readers can try to the best of their ability to put themselves into the historical context in which the stories are being told, right? So some of the stories, the recipes, are more modern interpretations. I might talk about um, Khaleesi's version or Chef Todd Richard's version and give that adaptation. But I might also stick with the earliest version to show something like a jam cake, which 
is the root of our passion for carrot cake, but it's really rooted in spice cakes. And, um, you know, it's just those, those little nuances that I, I figured out a way to, to weave in a great yeah. story. I was looking at your, your spoon bread recipes, and you have the, the historic one, and then you have a you know, contemporary one with contemporary ingredients. Because that's the thing is that you know, the, the ingredients themselves do change as we learn other things over time. And so I just so appreciate all the, all the just decades of work, the work that you've done for this. Uh, the book is Jubilee, Tony Tipton Martin. Um, I'm just so crazy about this book. Uh, thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been a delight. Thanks. Oh, all right, everybody. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to go through some okra recipes. You are going to tell me whether you personally can see yourself creating with okra. I know that this is sort of the, the most controversial vegetable, right? Because some people feel like, oh, it gets kind of slimy. But I got some recipes up at WCCORadio.com. Or I don't think they're slimy. But you can call or you can text... Your pro or anti-okra association, 651-989-9226. We'll get to those when we come back. Here, here. All right, so this is what we're going to do. we got plenty of time this hour for an Ask Me Anything or just chit-chat. All right, 651-989-9226. Call. What should we talk about? Should we talk about what you're doing for Thanksgiving? Should we talk about what you're going to do with all that extra Halloween candy? For those people that don't know, Minneapolis public schools were closed on Friday for record-keeping day. So not closed for the teachers, but closed for the kids. And uh, I th- I live in Minneapolis, and I think that this is what made this year the most epic Halloween we have ever had. I have lived in that house for 15 years, and we have had quiet nights. We have had bumping nights. This was just record-breaking. We had little tiny kids coming at 5. We had teenagers coming at 9.45. It was just a blowout. I could have gone through twice as much candy, and I had a lot of candy. Are you sure that the teachers at the Minneapolis schools didn't uh, cancel school just to avoid the sugar rush? I'm sure they did. I think that whoever in the Minneapolis public schools uh, firmament decided, you know what, we should have a record-keeping day on Friday was a genius because I would – I cannot even imagine having to wake them up the next day. I mean, and that's a, and then you get rid of them for a bunch of hours. But like, just it was a very smart idea. So. I think I think it should have been called a sanity day because I think the teachers might have lost their minds having to deal with all the sugar crashes yesterday and the parents and yeah. everything. Well, but that wasn't true for everybody. I heard, <laughs> I heard on my Twitter where I'm at, dear Dara, uh, people were just like, "My school district isn't closed. What are you talking about?" It's like, well. Everybody should get on the same page. If there's a Thursday Halloween, the next day should definitely be the day off. But, I mean, we had we had the most kids we've ever had. It was lovely. I was just standing on my porch looking up and down the block, and there's, you know, little, little Spider-Men were running here and little Wonder Women were running there. Uh, top Halloween costumes in my block, witches. Went back to the old school classic. A lot of, like, adorable witches with big crinolines and stuff. And then, like, tiny little adorable witches and tiny hats and giant skirts. I did not get enough of that. And then um, 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, little boys, they're all, I think it's very amusing to dress a toddler as a turtle because they kind of have that move anyway. And then <laughs> and then a bunch of little Marvel characters. So it's little little Spider-Man and I'm glad to see that some of the stuff that was around when I was a kid is still popular. Like te- and I know they've had a bit of a resurgence like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh there're probably kids out there that are dressing up as He-Man or She-Ra or uh uh what's the uh I'm trying to think of uh Strawberry Shortcake or or My Little Pony, or some, some some of that stuff from the 80s and 90s. There's that stuff from the 80s, but then there's a, a general cultural illiteracy. Uh, my daughter went around with one of her friends from school who was dressed as Dracula and had the teeth and the whole thing, looked very Dracula-ish, I thought. And apparently everywhere she went, nobody could figure out who she was. She was like, you're a witch? <laughs> like, you're a... She's like, I'm, I'm a vampire. What, are we lost the vampires? <laughs> so I don't know. We've got to get... Gotta get a, I'll get it on the same page, people. That surprises me because, you know, not 10 years ago, we were inundated with vampires, with all the vampire movies and the vampire lore and everything. And to have it go that quickly where you can't even recognize someone dressed up as Dracula, that kind of surprises me. Yeah. I, you know, my daughter went as Wednesday Adams sort of <laughs> two years ago, three years ago. And. Just all kinds of people were just flummoxed. They were like, who are, who could you be? It's like, there's been a bunch of movies. Yeah. Like, first there was a show in the 60s, then there were live action movies. I mean. Now, I will say this. There there hadn't been a movie out, I don't know, probably for 15, 10, 15 years until the recent one came out. So maybe I understand, but still, it's an iconic figure. Any of the Adams Family people are iconic figures. I would, I you know, I don't know. It's just, you just feel like we're all aware of certain things and then you find out like no people have never heard of dracula i don't know um i've never read the original book uh, that's kind of on my life list of things to get to but uh but i think i would know walk show up my door on halloween i'll be like oh you're all you gotta got to do is look one. at the teeth if the teeth have fangs <laughs> you know what it is all right now we're gonna seamlessly segue to okra recipes from this exciting Halloweenish thing. You ate your candy, now you gotta eat your vegetables. Okay, that's my that's the only that's all I got, people. All right, so this is what is up at WCCORadio.com right now. It is all about okra. Okra is um I've been just doing a lot of reading about how good it is for you. It's a relative of hibiscus, and hibiscus is kind of tied to all of these great cardiovascular benefits. If you have hibiscus tea, um, you'll just be more healthy. And okra is in that same universe. It's just uh, it's good for your good for your circulation and your body. And it's a vegetable which has high fiber because of those little seeds in it and the husks. You know how it is. So it's really one of those just superfoods. We don't talk about it. You can't go to your fancy juice bar and get okra dumped into your juice, but I don't know. Um, most people think it made it here from Africa, here in the United States of America, in the 1700s probably, sometime, you know, a generation before the American Revolution. And it's just kind of turned into such a core of, of life where it grows in the South. Um, so I've got Tony Tipton Martin, who was on here before, her, one of her recipes uh, Limpin' Susan. So it's kind of a cousin to Hoppin' John, but it's basically a very highly seasoned rice dish with a bunch of okra and bacon. 
Um, this is also a good potluck dish. It will stay warm, you know, if you if you have a warmer, obviously. But it will kind of hold up for a long time. It doesn't uh, doesn't have any fragility to it. So that's a nice, if you want to kind of bring something fresh to Thanksgiving, maybe a, an okra rice pilau called Limpin' Susan. Kind of fun. All right, I've got an all-American, all-American dish. Emeril, remember him with his bams? He was a he was a good time. He looks a little bit like Dracula in his in his special way. Um, Emeril has a gumbo of okra, shrimp, and tomatoes. He did with okra, 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 like that. Uh, so I've got that recipe up there, and you can watch him do that on a video with okra for a little '90s throwback. Uh, it's just the ultimate. Ult- New Orleans gumbo is the ultimate American melting pot food. It's a little bit African because that's where okra came from at one point. It's a little Native American with a filet powder uh, and tomatoes, of course. It's a little French, a little Spanish, Caribbean. Um, It's just it is the American dish in a lot of ways and also pretty simple, not complicated. All right, so I know that a lot of people hear okra and they think, oh, it's going to be slimy. I don't like slime. Well, I got a lemon pickle. So this is uh, kind of a very contemporary, fancy, current restaurant, but not hard. So you're going to do for this one is you're going to make a refrigerator pickle. So you're going to cook up some vinegar and sugar, a chili, lemon, dump that over a jar of okra, let that sit for a couple weeks, and then the magic will happen and you get something very crisp. And you can either kind of put those on a cheese board or slice them up and put them in a ham sandwich, all kinds of things. Um, Lemon okra pickles. And as ever, everybody, these are all up at WCCORadio.com. The links to them, you can go see them. Beautiful. Um, Just, I just am really into all of these ultra-American recipes right now. I just love our history and the way we eat in this country when it was unpretentious. Yeah. Could I ask you a quick question? So. I was listening to something the other day talking about how Brussels sprouts have made a big resurgence in oh, the yeah, way that people are have. cooking them lately. Could okra be the next in line? It could be. It could be. It takes a little more skill. The nice thing about Brussels sprouts is that they kind of harmonize with those sweeter flavors. And so a lot of the way that people are having them is with um, candied, basically in some way. So candied bacon or candied nuts or you know, so Americans have a, a sweet tooth kind of overall where, you know, you drink enough Coca-Cola, everything, you know, you can kind of move into that universe of Frappuccinos, Coca-Cola, everything's sort of sweet. Okra itself is not really uh, have those sweet harmonies, but I could totally see it um, turning into a whole 30 uh, fancy people like Tom Brady and Gazelle Bunkin losing weight food. Like if you told me this was the, you know, kind of those rich people with their iconic kale diet, if this was the next kale, it might be. Because kale never kind of crossed over to mainstream in the way Brussels sprouts have. And that's, I think, about the sweetness. Well, anyway, so here's another recipe that I got up there. A corn, peas, okra, country ham skillet. So this is just one of those, you know, throwing all kinds of good stuff into a skillet. Add some southern cream gravy. It, we don't eat like this much, but we should. It's it's really good. And you can do this with just frozen corn and frozen peas. Get it done. And then at last one, I put a, a lemon marinated okra. Another one of these crunchy ones. So you're going to macerate this. So you're just basically... Uh, you know, doing it with lemons and garlic and oil, putting it everything in a bag, letting it steep for a few days, 
And then that just is a, a nice, I think you could see this on restaurants too. So that's what we got. Those are all up at WCCORadio.com. We're going to come back and we'll have a little Ask Me Anything and, and find out where we're going to be next week. We're not going to be in the studio. Where will we be? Where's Dara? We'll find out. All right. How much do I love okra? Very much. I actually just want to be, if we had some sound quality issues, it's going to be one of my favorite shows of the year because this book is just jubilee. I feel like it's just changed. It broadened my idea of American history. And anytime you can do that, kind of changes everything. That is my favorite thing to do in food. I, that's why I've been in this game, this food writing food thinking game for 20 odd years because there's just so much more it all it's an infinite sea we will never get to the end of it it's which makes it awesome i would never want to do something where you're just done after you learn a little but i also hold a standard yeah i got a text about this whole hot gin and tonic situation. I was looking for a recipe yesterday. I blundered against it. Blundered into a recipe for a hot gin and tonic. Uh, Yeah, I just, no, there are certain things you cannot do. I will not tolerate it. I can't have it. I won't have it in my house. Oh, now you have it in your house through my voice, but it's terrible. Some people have terrible ideas, and the terriblest of them all, I don't know if that's the worst idea that I ever heard, but, I mean, come on, people. That's not what we're doing. Not it's not what we're doing, Jonathan. So, so you said a hot gin. Yeah, tonic? There's, there's people are selling a hot. It's like a hot tonic syrup, or no, it's a tonic syrup. Then you make it hot. Then you pour gin into it. You warm the whole thing up. It's just terrible. And so people are like, "Well, what about a gin toddy?" I don't even really like a gin toddy, to be perfectly honest. I respect the tradition of England where it gets cold and they drink a lot of gin and then they got to do something in the winter. But that's you know, respect but not love. I am not the person to discuss gin with. I'm not a gin person. But it just sounds like with that combination, what are it people thinking? They've like lost gasoline. their minds. Yeah, exactly. Hot gin? People, no. You know, I love capitalism. It, it's an efficient way to move ideas and market <laughs> into the marketplace. And then sometimes a couple of ideas come in that that really – is run it up the flagpole, and then we should all stand around and go, no, get that off the flagpole. It's called slapping people. <laughs> slapping people. Run it up the flagpole and see if people just completely reject it. All right, so what's happening next week? We're totally live, 100%, downstairs in the Cambria Galleries with the pop-up shops. Here's what I have been told. Going to have local vendors with arts and crafts, jewelry, home decor, and more. If you don't come, I will be bored, so... Put on your boots next week and come down to meet me live in the Cambria Galleries. Until then, put some extra cookie dough in the freezer in case guests pop in. I might be coming by. You don't know. (laughs) Until then, if I don't, then I'll see you down here in the Cambria Galleries next week on Off the Menu. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. (laughs) 